want to start this series today. As you saw in the announcements, it's called Upside Down. I was going to walk in here on my hands upside down, but I'm not strong enough or coordinated enough to do that. So uh, you're just going to have to take my word for it that, that this is upside down. All right. Uh, the concept, the precept of this series is that, you know, 2,000 years ago, Jesus came to the earth and he turned the whole world upside down. He set the world on edge. Uh, he, um, by, by his life, death, burial, and resurrection, he actually took the Old Covenant, which was the first half of our Bible. This was the testament that the, the Jews had only known. This was the one that was given to them by God thousands of years ago. This is the only thing they've ever lived and ever known. He took that and completely fulfilled it and gave us a brand new covenant, the second half of the Bible, which Hebrew, the book of Hebrews tells us is a much better covenant that Jesus made with each and every one of us. Before, you had to be one of the chosen, you had to be one of the family of God, you had to be one of the Jews to actually be considered one of God's people. Well, today, it's for all who would come and call on the name of the Lord. So Jesus turned the whole world upside down, and, and the, the text verse I'm gonna use for this is out of Acts 17. I'm gonna ask you to stand with me, please, just in honor of reading God's word this morning. And what happened was Paul and Silas in the book of Acts, they're going through and they're preaching the gospel. And Paul's planting churches all over the place. And he gets into Thessalonica and he's planting churches. He goes into the temple and he starts preaching about Jesus. And it says that a lot of Jews believed him and they got converted. But there were some that didn't. And they were upset about what Paul and Silas were doing. And this picks up where the the people that were upset took some action in verses five to seven. It says, but the Jews who were not persuaded Becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathered a mob and set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. Now, Jason was the man of God where Paul and Silas were staying with them. He was their host. And it says, but when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, these who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. Now these evil men and these jealous Jews unknowingly paid a huge compliment to Paul and Silas. They said they've turned the whole world upside down. And they're decreeing that there's a different king, and his name is Jesus. And to to that I say, well, thank you guys for preaching the gospel, even though you didn't really want to. Jesus came not only to turn the world upside down, he came to turn your world upside down too. And that's what we're gonna talk about over the next few weeks. Would you pray with me? Father, we love you today. We thank you for your wonderful presence in this place. God, thank you for every person that's here in person and thank you for those that are listening online. God, we ask that you would minister to our hearts today in a way that only you can do it. We give ourselves to you, let our hearts be good soil. Let it produce fruit in our lives and may we decrease and may you increase in our life, Jesus. We give you all the praise and the glory. You're the only one that deserves it. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, amen. Well, before you're seated, I want you to pray this with me real quick. Just repeat after me. Lord Jesus, turn my world upside down for your glory and for my good. Amen. 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 You can be seated. God bless you. Well, if you'll indulge me for a moment, I just want to take a couple minutes to set up this, this series before I get into the, the individual sermon for today. I want to talk to you a little bit about just upside down and kind of where we got to this place of even doing this series. You know, there's, 
Uh, there's things that happen in life that turn our life upside down. Sometimes it can be seasonal, sometimes it can be permanent, and sometimes it can be painful, and sometimes it can be really good. You know, there's painful things that will turn our life upside down. The death of a loved one or, or a diagnosis from the doctor that's, that's not good or losing a job or something like that that can really have a negative effect on our life and completely flips it upside down, changes everything in a moment sometimes. But there's also really good things that turn our life upside down. There's marriage. There's having children, having the birth of a child. And yes, that is a very good thing. And every parent said, amen. amen. It's a good thing we have children. They give us some tough times, but it's still a really good thing. And sometimes uh, a new job can turn your world upside down in a good way. You know, a financial blessing, an inheritance you didn't know you were getting that could turn your life upside down. And uh, no matter whether it's a, a, a difficult thing or a good thing, anytime our world is turned upside down, there's, there's challenges that come along with that. Anytime the status quo is, is messed up, there's challenges in our life. Because honestly, we're, we're creatures of habit as human beings. And so when our world gets turned upside down, it causes us to, uh, to reevaluate, to refocus, and to adjust in our life. And in fact, the definition of upside down is literally placed with the upper part where the lower part used to be. I love that definition. Placed where the up, placed, it's hard to even say, placed with the upper part where the lower part used to be. This is what Jesus came to do. He came to take the lower part and bring it to, where, to the upper part. He meant to flip us upside down before we were enemies of God. Now we're in the family of God. He flipped everything over. You know, he, he didn't come just to be a philosopher to talk to us about how to be good. You know, there's plenty of those in the world. We don't need more of those. He didn't come as a philanthropist that was just going to give us what we need to meet our financial needs or, or to walk around giving out, you know, get out of hell free cards wasn't what he came to do. He came to be the savior of the world, to completely turn. We were, we were on a path, and he came to completely turn us away from that path. That was the whole purpose of him coming and being in the world and being part of our life. He brought us, he took us from being a sinner to a saint. He took us from being lost to being found. We went from being cursed to being blessed. He did everything for us. And we oftentimes don't think about how much he's, especially if you've been a Christian for a long time, it's easy to forget who you were before Jesus came into your life. But see, those things that he's meant to do for us that, have, that are really great things and things we really want to receive, like, yes, I want those things. He also came to flip our purpose upside down. See, we don't just, when you're, when you're living for Jesus, it's not, about, um, it's not about just doing things selfishly. It's about living selflessly. It's not about living independently. It's about being dependent on him. It's not about indulging. It's about living sacrificially. So he, he not only came to change our status, he came to change our whole purpose. And that's what, that's what this whole series is about, about giving us purpose. In fact, because of what Jesus did, it does give us purpose, but we also know that it's going to be a war inside of us for the rest of our life. You know, when you give your life, you commit your life to Jesus and say, yes, I want to walk this path. I want to live for a greater purpose. It doesn't mean everything that's difficult just goes away. It just makes it more, uh, it's more visible for us. We, we have more of a recognition. We have more discernment about those things. So there's a war going on inside of us that will not end until we meet Jesus face to face. 
In fact, Peter promises us this in 1 Peter 2, in verse 11, he says, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. That's, he's talking to Christians. He said, your sinful desires are waging war against your soul. And you know what? If we're honest with ourselves, we know exactly what that feels like because we're dealing with it every day. If you really want to live for Jesus, you're gonna, your sinful desire doesn't just say, well, okay, he's a Christian now. I got to just let him go. Doesn't do it. The flesh is wicked. The heart is deceitfully wicked above all else and beyond cure. So it will be a battle for the rest of our life. And the sad thing is, is that millions and millions and millions of Christians lose this battle all the time. In fact, many of them on the battle and said, you know what, I can't do it. I'm, I'm, I, I can't not live according to my sinful desires. I know the truth, but I really can't fight this battle. So they give up and they hope that there's just some way, somehow God's still going to work it out that they get to be with him one day in the end. But that's not what the Bible teaches us. The Bible teaches us that to live for him means we're dead to ourselves. Paul says, I am dead. I am crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. I don't get to make that choice. And, and God wants to turn our lives upside down. The, the good news is, is that we don't have to lose these battles because we're not doing it on our own. We have the Holy Spirit that lives in us that gives us the power that we need to win these battles. Now, are we going to win every one every day? Of course not. We're not perfect. We're not sinless. But we're not powerless either. That's a beautiful thing. And see, the, one of the biggest reasons we struggle with, our, um, with living our life in this way is because we don't know who we are. So that brings me to my sermon for today. So I want to talk to you about identity. The title of my sermon is Identity Crisis. I haven't even started preaching yet. Here we go. <laughs> the question we all have to ask ourselves is, who am I? And we do ask this question, maybe not out loud, maybe we don't even think about it sometimes, but we're constantly asking ourselves, who am I? In other words, where's my value? What gives me worth in my life? Because, you know, we all crave value. We all want to feel like we have value. Nobody wants to feel worthless. Nobody, absolutely nobody wants to feel, even if you've given up, you don't want to feel worthless. The beautiful thing is as a follower of Jesus, you don't have to because we have worth because of the cross. The cross is what gives us value. You know, it's easy for us to say that Jesus died for the sins of the world and he did, but he also died for you and he died for me. And it's okay for us to personalize that. In fact, it's imperative that we do personalize it and make it about us. That it, he died not just for everybody, but that he had me on his mind when he was on the cross. That, it, that even though I was still a sinner, he came and died for me. And because of that truth, we don't have to lose all the battles. Unfortunately, the trials of life and the busyness of life, the reality of the things we have to deal with in a day in a day out basis can oftentimes cause this to become something that's dormant in our life. We don't always find our value in the cross. We don't always find our value in who Jesus is for us and what he has done in our life. And it makes us try to build an identity for ourselves in our society and, and basing our identity on other things other than the cross. And it could be, it's a myriad of things that we can find our identity in. It could be on our education, it could be in our career. It could be our success, how much money we make, how, much, how many material possessions we have, 
whether or not we're married. You know, if I, if I, somebody, if I can convince somebody to marry me, that means I have value because they love me enough to want to marry me. So that gives me worth and value. And we can find our identity in that. All of these things are not bad things unless we're finding our identity in those things because that's not meant to be where our identity is. In fact, if we build our identity in, in those things, we are setting ourselves up for failure because eventually those things will, will experience failure in our life in those things. I'm not saying our, like our marriage, not saying our marriage is gonna fail, but when we have a, go through a rough patch in our marriage, you start to feel like you don't have value or you're not worth what you think you are because your spouse is upset with you or things aren't going well or whatever, whatever can happen or if in our finances or in our education or in our life, our career, when things don't go well, when our identity is built on that, we start to feel like we're a failure because that's where our identity is. That's why last week I was talking about Jeremiah 17 and what the Lord spoke through Jeremiah. And he said, cursed is the one who puts his hope in man. And I was talking about how it's not even as much that God's necessarily against you and he's cursing you because you're putting your hope in man. It's the fact that you're just eventually going to fail because man is not meant to have all of our hope. We're not meant to be the vessels of hope for our life. We're meant, and we're not meant to be the vessels of our identity. We're not meant to find our identity in anything outside of who he is. And so we're setting ourselves up for failure. In fact, I would suggest to you today that we're not meant to build our identity at all. We're designed to receive our identity. God already did the building. He did the building 2,000 years ago. He set it up for us, and he's given us an identity, and now all we have to do is walk in it, receive it, and walk in it. But how many of you know that's a lot easier said than done? That's a lot. If it was that easy and all I had to do was say that and we're good, man, this would be, it'd be beautiful, but man, life really hits us hard a lot of times, and we only can know what we know, and we see what we see. And so we're confronted with that on a daily basis, and it can make it difficult to actually find our identity in the cross. And it's okay to ask the question, who am I? I think that's important that we ask it. The, the, the important thing is, is that where we look for the standard of who we are. You know, God gave us his word. It's, when we're asking the question, who am I, and we're seeking out the answer, it needs to be in here. If we're looking for the answers, it's got to be in the Word of God. And too often times, we go to other places to find the answer. A lot of times, it's in here. It's in the things in society that are represented by the computer we hold in our hand all day long, you know? Social media. How many of us are finding our self-worth based on how many friends and likes and views we have on social media? You know, we'd like to think that's just a teenager thing, but I know it's not. It's probably a little more prevalent with kids because they're dealing with it on a, on a more regular basis, but all of us can struggle with that. We want to find our identity in that. We want to see how many people are liking our posts. We got to find our identity in this, because this is what tells us who we are, and it's, it is enough for all of us. Mm. Our identity crisis has taken a whole new meaning in our society today. It's taken on a whole, you know, identity crisis used to mean that you're just going through a season of insecurity, of wondering you know, where you are in life or your purpose in life. Well, today it's, it's taken on a whole new meaning, which is it, it, it makes it more evident to us that we cannot let society determine our identity because society is changing rapidly. It's progressing rapidly. I mean, the, the term identity crisis, you know, it doesn't even mean the same thing today as it did even a few years ago. Now we're talking about the identity of what our gender is in our society. You're hearing it all the time, right? 
I, I'm, I'm, I never thought I'd live to see the day where we're talking about allowing kids to determine if they want to be a boy or a girl. It's incredible. It really is. And let me tell you, those people that are struggling with that, they need our love. They need the love of Jesus because Jesus is the one that transforms us. You know, we can easily get judgmental if we're not careful, but let me tell you, none of it, but by the spirit of God living in us, we're no better than anybody else. It's his spirit in us that gives us the stability to understand what we're designed for and how we were created to be. And it's based on a knowledge and understanding of the word of God. So people are struggling with things now that, man, it makes me, it makes me so uh, adamant that I don't want to find any of my identity from anything society can give me. Because society does not have the fear of God. Society doesn't even have the word of God. They're not building on that. So it's, so it's more important that we understand who we are in Christ than ever. We have to know who we are. And let me tell you, in regards to the, the gender thing, church, this is, it's, it's a spiritual battle. Paul was very clear in Ephesians 6 that we do not battle against flesh and blood. If you're, if you get, if you're frustrated or you, or you get these feelings about where society is going, it's a spiritual battle. We battle against the forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We need to be on our knees praying that the love of God would, in, would invade our society and draw people to him. And they would be drawn back to him the way that God intended for it. And I believe he wants to do that. And he, I believe he wants his church to be on our knees praying and asking him to do it. He's ready and willing, I believe, with all my heart to do it. It's so important that we know who we are in Jesus. We have to stop trying to get society's stamp of approval. And again, on a Sunday morning, we're all in here and, you know, most of us are like-minded. That's an easy thing to say, but it's a harder thing to live out. But it's not enough to say that we're a Christian. That that's our identity because in society, Christian doesn't mean a whole lot anymore. I just looked just this week and the, the newest polls say that still 65% of Americans say that they're Christian. And you and I both know that 65% of Americans are not following Jesus, not even close. So that's just a label that they put on us now. So maybe even more than asking the question, who am I? Maybe the question needs to be, whose am I? Whose are we? Amen. In fact, let me give you a verse that would solidify whose we are from the apostle John. In John 1, verse 11 to 13, he says, he came to that which was his own. He's talking about Jesus here. But his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, not of human decision or of a husband's will, but born of God. That's a beautiful promise. Let's not get so far along on this Christian journey that a statement like that doesn't move our hearts. Let us not forget who we are, that we are children of the King. That he, and, and, and we didn't deserve it, but he did everything that needed to be done to bring us into the fold with him. We need to meditate on this frequently. If you're here today and you say, I'm a Christian, this is something we need to meditate on all the time. I am a child of God. He has chosen me. He has brought me out of the miry clay into his family. He's not just our employer. He's not just our friend. He doesn't just follow us on social media. He is our heavenly father and we are his children. That is a beautiful promise. Yes, give God praise for that today. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus.
We need to be reminded that we are his children and that we are his. Whose am I? I'm his. You know, the, the, the biggest revelation I had of this in my entire life was about 19 years ago when my first child was born, Taylor. And on the day she was born, we actually went for a C-section. Or no, I'm sorry, we went, they were inducing joy. And we got there early in the morning. We were there all day into the night and she still wasn't progressing much. And they finally came in and looked at about, uh, I don't know, eight o'clock or so. And they said, the baby's actually in distress. So we need to do a C-section. So we went from sitting there playing cards to all of a sudden we're gowning up and going into an operating room. And uh, you know, I, we'd only been married a year and we were young and naive and I didn't know what to expect, you know? And, and uh, it was quite an ordeal, but everything went well. Taylor was born and everything was good. And uh, but it was, you know, I think there was a little bit of, just for me, a little bit of shock of everything that happened that day and the fact that I'm, I'm already, a, I'm a dad and, and uh, just kind of contemplating the events of the day. And it was about 10 o'clock at night. We were in our room and Joy was on the bed and she was pretty much out of it. She, they had her on some pretty hard, intense pain medication because of the C-section. So I'm just sitting there in the chair, uh, just kind of recounting the events of the day. And Taylor's in her bassinet over in the corner, and uh, I'm just kind of staring off into space, and all of a sudden, I just felt like somebody told me to get up and look at Taylor. And uh, I didn't know it at the time what that was, but now I know it was absolutely the Holy Spirit, because I got up, walked over to her bassinet, and I looked down at her, and she looked fine, but her chest wasn't really going up and down. It didn't look like she was breathing. But, you know, here I am, 27 years old. I don't know nothing. I thought, well, maybe, you know, I don't know, maybe babies only breathe every five minutes. Who knows? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's how dumb I was, you know. But then she started turning blue, and I'm like, well, I know that ain't normal. And I just kept watching her and watching her, thinking, you know, this will probably go away. And she got bluer and bluer and bluer to the point I was like, okay, something's wrong here. And so I snatched her up. I run out in the hall thinking, well, at least I'm right here by the nurse's station. They'll be able to help me. Of course, I get out there, not a soul. I mean, it was like an abandoned hospital all of a sudden. And, you know, I'm a pretty chill, laid-back guy, but I started yelling. I was like, hey, somebody's helped me. My baby's not breathing. And here comes this nurse running around the corner, and, and she snatches Taylor out from my hands. We go into the room there, and, and um, she takes that rubber sucky thing and sucking out her throat and getting stuff out. She's like, you know, sometimes in a C-section, they don't get everything cleaned out. So she's cleaning her out, and then she starts pulling on her hair. And I'm like, why are you pulling her hair? And she said, well, I got to get her to scream, you know? So she'll, and I'm, oh, okay, whatever. And, uh, but I, I'm, I'm, I don't know, I'm so glad there's not video, because I'm sure my face was just, and, uh, all of a sudden, Taylor screams and starts crying and coughing up stuff, and everything was fine. And the whole thing lasted probably a minute or so, you know? But wow, wow, the trauma. And I remember after it was all over, she handed Taylor to Joy, and Joy was alert by then. And all of a sudden, the nurse looks at me, and she can tell something's up. She goes, are you okay? And I said, uh, yeah. And the floodgates opened, and I just, tears just started rolling down my face. And I'm, you know, I'm a 27-year-old guy. I'm a tough guy. We don't cry, you know? Here I am sobbing like a baby. And I'm, I'm actually like, man, I don't even know why I'm crying so hard, you know? But it just, the, the thought of like how close she could have come to, to dying there, it overwhelmed me. And it made me this weeping baby like all night. We didn't sleep much that night because Joy was actually in a lot of pain. And so we were up most of the night and I was crying off and on and just like really emotional. And, and uh, the next morning we got up and and I went to, I drove home to shower and clean up, you know, and I was coming back. But on my way home, I was just talking to the Lord while I'm driving. And it's like just thanking God for what happened. And I started thinking to myself, like, man, it's really crazy because, you know, obviously, you know, you love your child, but the practical side of it is like to be this 
overwhelmed by it. I was like, you know, I, I just met the girl. She just was born a few hours earlier. And up until now, she's done nothing but cause trouble in our life, you know. Uh, Joy was morning sick for nine and a half months. So it was, you know, it was quite a thing. But man, my, my attachment, my draw to her was just so overwhelming. I didn't even know I had that capacity. And the Lord spoke to me as clearly as he's ever spoken to me in my life, driving in my car on the way home. And it wasn't an audible voice, but it might as well have been. He said, you love her like that because she's yours. And he said, not only that, he said, and I love you infinitely more than you love your child, and it's because you're mine. And whoo, well, then the floodgates opened again, you know? And um, man, it was just such an incredible revelation in my life. And I didn't even realize it up until that point how much I'd really just been striving in my relationship with God. And, I was, and, and from that moment on, I, I've been learning what it means to abide and not strive, but to just rest in his love and know that he loves me, not because, not because I'm doing missions work or because I'm in ministry or because I, I don't watch R-rated movies, but because I'm his. That's why he loves me, because I'm his. And church, that's, that's what he is with you. He loves you because you're his, not because you're good enough, not because you read your Bible enough, not because you preach about Jesus to your friends, but it's because you're his. That's enough. And my prayer for you today is that you would get that revelation if you've never had it, that you are enough because you're his. That's all you need. The Apostle Paul said in Romans 8, he gives us a beautiful uh, description of the father heart of God in Romans 8, verses 15 to 17. He says, for you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received a spirit of sonship. So God gave you this spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. Abba is how a child would address their dad. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are his children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we also may share in his glory. We are heirs. That means we are children. We are, we've been bought in. We are adopted. Nothing can change it. We are his children, and we can rest in that. And if you're a parent in this place today, you know what I'm talking about. Your kid can mess up all day long and can drive you crazy and can cause you more gray hairs than you knew you could have, and you still love them. Nothing will change the love of a parent towards their child. And God says, as much as you love your children, you're evil. How much more do I love mine? Our identity is in him and who he says that we are in our life. We are his children. It's interesting, too, because, you know, as kids, we just want to grow up. You know, I hear from my kids all the time. They're like, I can't wait till I'm grown up. I'm going to drink Coke for breakfast. You know, like, I just want to do what I want to do. And as parents, we look at our kids and we all say the same thing. Son, daughter, this is the easiest your life's ever going to be. You should enjoy it, right? But we're the same way with our Heavenly Father. Like, we want to be all grown up. We want to be independent. And God's saying, just be my child. Just be my child. I'll provide for you. I'm your provider. I'm your healer. I'm your sustainer. I'm your everything. You can trust me, right? But here's the thing. Your enemy is dedicated to keeping you in the dark about this truth. Because people that know, followers of Jesus that know their identity in Christ and know that they are a child of God and what that means, you are a problem to the kingdom of darkness. So the enemy will do everything to try to keep you 
from understanding and knowing that truth. So we have to pursue it, guys. We have to go after it. We have to, we have to purpose in our heart that we're going to understand and believe that truth. And I believe God will reveal it to us. And you know what? He revealed it to me 19 years ago. He still has to reveal it to me sometimes because God knows that just because something happened today doesn't mean we're going to believe it again tomorrow. You know, we're human beings and we want to know what you've done for us lately. Right? And so we have to be very intentional to make sure that we are pursuing the truth of God's word in our life. But the enemy is going to try to keep you down. And so your identity is always going to be under attack. Your identity is always going to be under attack. The enemy, he doesn't create identity crisis. He's not a creator. He's a distorter. So he looks for your insecurities and he will exploit them to cause your identity, your identity to be fractured. Because your insecurities are what fracture your identity. And eventually those insecurities, when they fracture your identity, they, they, are, the, they are the catapult, they are the catalyst that, that catapults you into sin. Most of the sin we struggle with is, comes from our insecurity fracturing our identity in Jesus. Because let me tell you, when we know who we are in him, suddenly a lot of those sinful desires aren't as strong in our life. But when we don't know who we are in him and, we, and then our insecurities are feeding us, suddenly we're looking to indulge rather than live sacrificially. We're looking to be selfish instead of selfless in our life. And it's important that we make sure that we are aware of this because the enemy is always looking to exploit. In fact, 1 Peter 5.8, Peter tells us to stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So the enemy, your enemy is compared to a lion in the scripture multiple times. And the lions, the way they hunt is, is usually based on pursuing and exploiting weakness. They'll scatter a herd and go after the weakest part of the herd. And that's what your, your enemy does in your life. He's looking for your weakness, your insecurity, and he wants to exploit it. And he wants to give you every opportunity to uh, appease and satisfy your fleshly hungers is what he will do in our life. And our fractured identity... That, that comes from our insecurity is oftentimes what, where we'll see the sin in our life magnified and exploited. Like, for instance, in the Christian life, the sexual sin that Christians struggle with is, is most times it's, it comes from a place of insecurity. It comes from a place of fractured identity. You know, for, for women, it's, it's maybe it comes from a place of an abandonment from a, a father and they're looking to be feeling like they have value to men and so they give themselves to men in ways they normally wouldn't but they their identity is fractured because of what happened to them for men they give themselves to to sexual promiscuity because their identity is fractured because they're looking to feel like like they matter too they're looking to feel like they the only thing that matters is is fulfilling my own needs because i don't really understand who i am in christ and so a lot of the sins we deal with come from this. If you're a workaholic, it could come from an insecurity of not feeling like you're good enough and you got to prove yourself in your life. So many things that we deal with, apathy in our life comes from a place of not really knowing who you are in Christ, having that fractured identity, just not caring because, ah, what does it matter anyway? Nobody cares about me. It doesn't matter. What I'm, not, what I'm doing is not going to be significant. So what's the big deal? It all comes from that same place but the beauty is, is that Christ restores our identity. He restores that fractured identity when we pursue him, when we understand his great love.
for us. In fact, he shows us how to respond when the enemy will attack our identity. Because Jesus was actually attacked by the enemy when he was on earth. The story in Matthew 4, the temptation of Jesus. So Jesus gets baptized by John the Baptist, starts his, his earthly ministry. But before he does that, the Holy Spirit leads him out into the wilderness for 40 days. He fasted for 40 days, and then he's tempted and, and attacked by the enemy. And we learn some great truths from this scenario of how we can respond when the enemy comes against us. Because the enemy attacked him the same way he attacks us. He attacked his identity. In fact, let's look at it. Matthew 4, verse 3. This is the first temptation he did. It says, The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. What did he do there? He went right after his identity. Oh, if you're the Son of God, that's his identity. Then what you need to do is tell these stones to become bread. So since he couldn't attack Jesus in his area of insecurity and, and sin nature, he had to come at him in an area of physical weakness, because Jesus had fasted for 40 years, so he was, hung, he was obviously hungry. So Satan comes at him and says, he attacks his identity. If you're the son of God, here's a weakness that I'm gonna, I'm gonna exploit in your life. Well, obviously Jesus responded appropriately, but that's how the enemy comes at us too. He's always trying to find a way to exploit our weaknesses, to give us an opportunity to indulge and to satisfy our hungers, our fleshly hungers. And he's always going to come at you in your area of weakness. You know, the enemy doesn't attack me in the area of drunkenness because it's never been a struggle for me. So I don't find myself, he doesn't, he doesn't put me in situations or he doesn't tempt me in that way because it's futile. But he'll come at me in other areas of weakness and, and try to get me to indulge by attacking my identity, saying, really, if you're really a child of God, then this. And he'll attack us, he'll he'll proposition he'll tempt us and even though jesus responded appropriately sometimes we don't respond appropriately we fail in these situations praise god for his mercy and his grace where he forgives as we come to him we can trust him in that but we also see a a uh, a bit of a strategy here that the enemy has when we when his strategy is exposed in our life it helps us to be able to really know how to fight it and come against it because the enemy wants to use our weakness to enslave us or destroy us ultimately Jesus wants to use our weakness to show his strength. Man, God is so good. I mean, he's so good because the, the very tactics of the enemy, where the enemy would come to destroy, to, to expose our weakness and get us enslaved in our sin, Jesus says, I'm, it's not that you don't have weakness, but Jesus says, if you'll give me your weakness, I'll actually use it as a strength. Paul said, I will boast in my weakness because where I am weak, he is strong. And God told Paul, he said, my grace is sufficient for you because my strength is made perfect in your weakness. So it's not that we need to figure out, try to not have any weaknesses in life. It's that we need to allow God to take those weaknesses and use it as a strength. When we surrender ourselves to him and say, God, I'm weak in this area, then he comes in and says, okay, well, I'm going to use this and to show my strength in your life. You know, his grace, as much as, 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 much as it is forgiveness, and washing of our sins, it's also power in our life to give us the strength we need to live the life that he has called us to. So the second temptation from Satan to Jesus was found in verse six, and he does it again. He says, if you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. 
he took him up to the top of the temple and he said, okay, Jesus, if you are the son of God, attacking identity, throw yourself down. You know what he's doing there? He's attacking his identity by trying to get him to question God's faithfulness. God said he'll lift you up. He won't let your, your, your foot hit against a stone. So he's questioning, he's causing, trying to get Jesus to question God's faithfulness. Again, it didn't work on Jesus, but it works on us. It does work on us sometimes. Well, here he will attack our identity. He'll say, oh, if you are a child of God, then why has God allowed this to happen in your life? If you're a child of God, why'd you get that bad diagnosis from the doctor? If you're a child of God, why is COVID-19 destroying so many lives among people that you love and care about? If you're a child of God, why is your job so terrible and you're underappreciated and underpaid? If you're a child of God, why dot, dot, dot? I mean, fill in the blank. Tons of things in our life that we could say, that the enemy could say to us, if you really are a child of God, if that's really your identity, you're one of his children, I wouldn't let my kid have to go through that. I mean, we all deal with it. Every one of us, we can question it all day. And you get to a level of maturity in your faith where you start to realize that God's faithfulness is not dependent on whether or not my circumstances turn out the way I want them to. He's faithful in the midst of those. He's faithful in the midst of the tragedies in our life. He's faithful in the midst of the bad diagnosis from the doctor. He's faithful in the midst of the fact that our spouse is leaving us or cheating on us. He's faithful in the midst of all of that. And we can trust him. He's trustworthy. He doesn't promise us that the world's going to be perfect because we're following him. But the enemy will try to twist it. He'll try to say, well, if you're a child of God, why is this happening? And we have to be able to stand on the truth. And, and, and again, I'm, I'm exposing this because I want us to see that these are the tactics of the enemy. So when we have those questions in our mind like, man, I, I love God, I serve him, why this? That's from the enemy, church. That is from the enemy. Because I know we want things to go the way we want them to go, but let me tell you, God... He, we don't always even understand it in the moment. Sometimes we don't even understand it after it. Sometimes we won't understand it until we're with him face to face. But the truth is he's sovereign. The truth is that his faithfulness does never changes. It is never wavering. He's never been unfaithful in the history of the world to any person, ever. And his ways are higher than ours. Sometimes things happen, we pray, and God does exactly what we ask him to do. Something, so another time something happens, we pray, and God doesn't do anything we ask him to do. It doesn't change his faithfulness. So don't let the enemy convince you that God is not faithful because of the questions that he puts in your mind. You're still a child of God. He still loves you better than you could ever love anybody in the history of the world. All right, then the third temptation was from verse nine. He, said, he takes him up and get, lets, takes him to where he can see all the kingdoms of the world. And Satan says, all this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. So he finally comes at him and attacks his identity in the area of trying to attack, attack any lusts that he would have, any, any materialism, any of these, these selfish, sinful desires that we might have of wanting power or fame or fortune or any of these things. The enemy will come and attack us in that way. Say like, and, and what this does is it, it changes our motivation. If we if we believe in this or if we give ourselves to this, it changes our motivation for even serving God. We start to worship God and serve God for what he can do for us. And this is, a, this is an attack of the, this is another very sly scheme of the enemy in our lives to try to get us to serve God for what he's gonna do for us. It kind of, it kind of encapsulates all of what Satan did here to Jesus. He's basically trying to affect our motives. And we have to be very diligent and clear that our motives are 
going to, our motives of serving God are to honor him, to glorify him, to see his kingdom come, his will be done, and to, and to see him be faithful in our lives. And we serve him and worship him because he deserves it, because he's worthy of it, because worthy is the lamb to receive the reward of his suffering. That's why we serve him, not for what he can give us or give to us. So I want to leave you today with a challenge. My challenge is this. Do not love this world. Now, saying this on a Sunday morning feels good. Because we're all in our little, we're in our little bubble here. This is a little bubble. It's a fun bubble. I really enjoy this bubble. It's my favorite time of the week. But when we leave here, loving this world is, not loving the world is a lot harder concept. In fact, if we're honest with ourselves, this may be one of the biggest struggles in our life. We may love this world more than we're willing to admit. And I want to tell you today that I want you to be honest with yourself. I want you to be transparent with yourself and with your God. Because God can't do work in our heart if we're not opening it up to him. But he has told us not to love this world. This is what steals our identity and confuses us more than anything else in, in life, if we're honest. But John tells us in 1 John 2, very clearly our stance, what it should be. In verses 15 to 16, he says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That's a hard word. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does, comes not from the Father, but from the world. He's basically saying here, you cannot love both. You cannot love the world and love God. Amen. We fool ourselves into thinking we can. Well, I'm just going to love kind of this part of it. And we, we convince ourselves, in fact, sometimes we'll convince ourselves that the things we love of the world are blessings from God. Now, we can receive blessings from God, but we, without loving the world. Now, when I, and let me be very clear here. When I'm talking about loving the world, I'm not talking about loving people. We're called to love everybody. Amen. But we're not called to embrace the culture. We are not citizens of this world. We are citizens of heaven. So our, our adoration, our commitment, our loyalty is not meant to be to this world because don't be deceived, church. The world is not just some entity that's sitting there passively. The world will always be an aggressor trying to get your loyalty. Always, always, always. Because again, this is what we know. The world is what we know. The world is what we see every day. To see the things of God, we have to look with our spirit. We have to see with our spiritual eyes. But we still have these physical eyes. And so the world is always pulling at us. It's always the lusts of the earth are always pulling at us. And sometimes we're giving into it a little bit. We're kind of sneaking over this way. You know, it never happens all at once. We, we typically, we don't, as followers of Jesus, we don't just get on a diving board and dive into the things of the world, you know? It's usually a slow erosion. You know, we give ourselves a little bit to something and then we give ourselves a little more and a little more until eventually you find that you're actually completely in love with the world. You turn around and go, oh my goodness, I really love the things of this world. And God's telling us very clearly that we are not to embrace the things of this world. You will either affect culture or you will reflect culture. And we're not meant to reflect culture. We're meant to affect culture. We're meant to be the salt, the light, 
the hands and feet of Jesus that are going into the culture and affecting it for his kingdom and for his glory. Not to reflect it to where we blend in and don't look any different than the world. We are not meant to blend in. The world should not accept you as one of their own. And oh, by the way, you go to church on Sunday. No, that's not who we're meant to be. Jesus told us the world's going to hate you because of me. Now, we don't need to try to get everybody to hate our guts, but we also don't need to try to blend in. It's okay if, if people in your circle get frustrated because you're a follower of Jesus. That's okay. Because what that does sometimes, it heaps conviction on their head. They don't like the fact that you don't do the things they want you to do. So we can't try to blend in. In fact, James 4 tells us, you got to love James. He doesn't pull any punches. In verse 4, he says, you adulterous people. <laughs> now he's talking to believers here. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. So you still think you can do both? It's impossible. It's impossible. Now, praise God. It's just a matter of turning around. We're never too far gone. Never, ever too far. As long as there's breath in our lungs, we can come back. And you know what? You may have to come back a lot. You can make a commitment today and tomorrow you're already struggling sometimes. But you just come back. And we can win more of these battles than we lose. The fact is we come from a different kingdom. You see, secularism is advancing in our society. I mean, I'd like to stand up here today and say revival's happening all over the place and people are coming to Jesus in droves and people are getting saved. In fact, there's some, there's some demographics where they're saying a lot of people are getting saved during COVID-19, which is praise God. But I think we could all say that our society as a whole is advancing towards secularism. You know, it used to be that even society ran to religion to help them solve their problems. Now we're in a time in space where religion is perceived as the problem in more cases than not. So society's not running to us anymore to help with their problems. They're seeing us as the problem because we're keeping them from doing what they think that we should be doing. And you can't run towards something if we're running as a society towards secularism. You can't run towards something without running away from something. So they're running away from organized faith. You know, the, there's a group, they call them the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, those people that say they have no affiliation with religion. The number has quadrupled in the last 10 years. Huge. And so our society is running from that. So it's all the more important for us that we don't love this world, that we don't find our value and our worth based on our society because it's ever-changing. Now, let me say, I don't want to be doom and gloom. I believe that a revival is coming. I believe God's pouring out his spirit and we're going to see a move of God unlike anything we've seen in our lifetime. I believe that with all my heart. I don't know when. I pray it starts this afternoon. In fact, it could start right now if it wants to. But the, the fact of the matter is we're not there right now. And so we have to be all the more guarded against allowing society to determine our identity. Our identity is in him and him alone. Paul said in Philippians 3 verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven. We eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you eagerly awaiting? We, should, we need to be eagerly awaiting 
this new kingdom, this, this new life that we're going to live. Again, it's difficult to do because this is all we know is right now. And I'm, I'm as guilty as anyone of, of saying to God in the past, all right, Jesus, don't come back until... I remember being a teenager and saying, God, don't come back till I can drive. I want to drive for at least a month. I don't think there's any driving in heaven, so can I have that? You know, and then you get to where, like, God, don't come back. Don't, Jesus, don't come back until I can get married. Don't come back until I can have kids. Don't come back until I have grandkids, because I hear that's better than having kids. Please wait. I need to do all these things. It just tells us how carnal our minds are. Like, to think, God, I don't want to be part of your kingdom yet, because I want to drive a four-wheeled car. It's absurd, right? I mean, he says you can't even describe what awaits for us in heaven. You can't even put it into, there aren't words to describe it. But yet, oh God, let me, let me have this, this stuff that I really want to have before you come back because I don't want to be in heaven and regret it for eternity that I didn't get to get married. It's absurd. But we've, we've, most of us have been there. But we need to be like Paul where we are eagerly awaiting our Savior to return and take us into our kingdom that he has built and made for us. Would you stand with me, please? And I'll close us out today. We don't have this on the screens, but this is a uh, verse out of Matthew 13. These are the words of Jesus when he gave the parable of the uh, hidden treasure. This is about the kingdom of God. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. And when a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy, he went and sold all he had and bought that field. And when I read that, I actually get convicted. I think, is that how I see the kingdom of God in my own life? Would I be, am I willing to give up everything? It says he sold all he had. He left nothing else. He sold all he had and went and bought that land because he knew that that treasure was there and that treasure was going to be his. And Jesus is saying, that's the kingdom of heaven. So that we would not love this world. There's nothing in this world that could satisfy us. And we would even be content to go with absolutely nothing because we know that we have this hidden treasure that, that no one can take away because I own it now because it's on my land. That's the kingdom of God, Jesus. These are the words of Jesus. And if, if this isn't how we feel, then it should bother us. It should bother us. We shouldn't read that and go, ah, that was just Jesus being, being folksy. It was him describing the kingdom of heaven, like what the followers of Jesus are supposed to be like. Now, I'm not saying we all need to go out and sell our house and our cars and get rid of everything and live in a ditch because we're saved. That's not what he's talking about, but he's talking about where's your value? Is your value in the things of this earth? Are you, are, do you love this world? Are you finding your identity in the things of this world? Are you finding your identity in society and what they think of you? Or are you finding your joy in knowing that you have this treasure that no one can take away? It's all about where your joy is. And so I would say today to you, if, that's not, if that doesn't resonate with you, if you feel like, mm, that ain't me, then it should bother us. And I'm, I'm saying it should bother us in such a way that it moves us to ask the Lord to do that work in our heart, that we would see his kingdom for what it is, that it's not just a get out of hell free card, but that it's our life and that it's our everything. It's our joy. It's our peace. It's our strength. It's everything. And God will do that in our hearts. He will do it. And we're all on this journey, you know, where we, we grow in this every day. 
The kingdom of God means more to me today than it did five years ago. And hopefully next week it'll mean more to me than it does even today. I always want that, that growth in our life. That's what we're looking for. Is that God would do that work in our heart, but it's gotta be him. It's his spirit working in us. So let's pray today. And as we pray, just receive this and just open up your heart to him. Thank you, Father. Lord, we love you today. We thank you for your word. It is your word that transforms us. God, I pray today that you would help us to find our worth, find our value, find our identity in who you say we are. We are yours. We are your children. You are our father. You gave us the spirit of a child of the king. And we, we walk in that today, Lord. And for the times that we have turned from that and said, that's not enough. That we've looked for our, our worth and our value in other places, Lord. God, we repent of that today. We thank you, Lord, that your forgiveness is never ending. And every time we turn back to you, Lord, you receive us with open arms. So God, we come to you today. Help us to see your, your kingdom as that treasure hidden on a, in a field, that we would give up everything to have that, that that's where we find our worth, that's where we find our identity. Lord, we want you to turn our world upside down, that we would not value the things of this world, but we would value what you say we are and who you say we are. We are a child of the King, and we worship you, we love you, and we thank you for it, Lord. You are worthy of our worship and our praise and of our lives, and we give them to you again today. Lord, and as we walk out of this building today, Lord, I pray that this, this word would produce fruit in our lives, that it would be sealed in our hearts by your spirit. We stand against the schemes of the enemy today, Lord. Would you keep our eyes open to his schemes so that we can stand against them by the power of the Holy Spirit in our life. We stand against them today in the name of Jesus. Lord, we know that the enemy has blinded the minds of unbelievers. But Lord, he does not have the power to blind our eyes and our minds because of your spirit in us. Lord, help us to submit every part of our heart to you, to your leading and to your calling in our lives. We'll thank you and give you all the glory, all the praise, all the honor in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. Can we worship him today? Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. God is good, amen.